Welcome to the Wealth Experience podcast series where our subject matter experts provide the latest updates on what's happening in the world around us. Brought to you by BMO Private Wealth. Hello, everybody. My name is Sylvain Brisbois, BMO Private Wealth National Sales Manager. Today, we have two of our in-house subject matter experts with us to discuss a topic that is of growing interest, if not of concern, uh, to all Canadians, that is the economic impact of COVID-19 pandemic and the Bank of Canada's actions to support the Canadian economy and financial system. So I'm going to turn it over now to Richard Belly, BMO Private Wealth's fixed income strategist, and Michael Gregory, BMO Capital Markets Deputy Chief Economist, to discuss this. Richard, over to you. Thank you, Sylvain. Welcome, everyone. Uh, today's podcast uh, will focus on very topical issues that are raising concerns among investors. Uh, the significant growth in the deficit and debt uh, and the aggressive monetary policies of the Bank of Canada, in particular the asset purchase program, are concerning. Not only are investors questioning the necessity of these drastic measures, but more importantly, what are the risks of maintaining them in place for a prolonged period? Does the government have a plan to repay the debt, and could the excessive money printing lead to an important inflationary cycle? Objectively, we won't be able to cover all material and answer all questions in the next 15 minutes, but we hope we will be able to answer some of your most important questions. Let's start by looking first at the logistics of quantitative easing, commonly called QE. After resisting using the monetary, this monetary policy tool during the financial crisis in 2008-2009, the Bank of Canada decided to introduce QE at the end of March this year as the Government of Canada was announcing support programs for the economy. For many, the term QE or quantitative easing is often referred to money printing. Michael, can you provide us with some background on the Bank of Canada QE program that they are currently using, the behind-the-scene mechanics, and whether this is effectively money printing? Sure thing, Richard. Well, uh, to your point, uh, the Bank of Canada uh, uh, did not engage in quantitative easing, say unlike the Fed, in, in the wake of the global financial crisis and the, and the Great Recession, but had done so this time for the very first time. And essentially what they're doing is they're buying securities, uh, Governor Canada, Government of Canada securities, also provincial government securities and some corporate securities. And uh, most of those are being bought in the secondary market. So the Bank of Canada will, will announce they plan on buying um, a, a certain amount of, say, uh, Government of Canada bonds within a certain maturity bucket. And then the primary dealers will offer those to the Bank of Canada. The Bank of Canada will take the optimal amount to get to their total. And then the Bank of Canada will, will, will pay for those bonds by uh, accrediting the accounts of the various primary dealers, the banks, at the Bank of Canada. So what happens from before this transaction, the Bank of Canada you know, had assets and liabilities at a certain amount. Now they've increased those assets by the amount they purchased in terms of government Canada securities, and, and they've increased the liabilities which are the deposits of the, uh, of the primary dealers of the charter banks at the Bank of Canada. So they, they, they literally create this out of the ether. And are they printing money? Well, they are kind of printing electronic money. This is exactly what they're doing. They, they are, they are uh, uh, increasing the money supply, and they are increasing the size of their balance sheet. 
so far the uh, thank you michael so far the the different asset purchase programs as you mentioned have focused primarily on short and longer term government and corporate securities could the bank of canada consider like other institutions buying uh, securities like ETFs or even equities in the future? Yeah, yeah. I mean, like other central banks uh, uh, have done other things. Uh, um, like, for example, the Fed has set up uh, a, a special purpose vehicle uh, with capital funded by the U.S. Treasury to cover losses, and they, they have purchased, say, bond ETFs. Uh, not equity ETFs, though. Uh, the only other central bank that has done so in an aggressive ma- manner is the Bank of Japan. And, and I would consider buying uh, even a broader set of assets, uh, and even uh, you know a, a more desperate move or more last resort move. Because let's face it, what central banks don't necessarily want to do is take on credit risk. They're buying relatively short-term uh, uh, private securities, a limited amount of uh, uh, long-term corporate securities, but mostly government securities. And, and to actually buy ETFs, you'd have to exhaust, like the Bank of Japan did, all their other alternatives. Keep in mind, the Bank of Japan not only has done QE, they've done negative interest rates, and they've also done yield curve control, uh, you know, targeting the, uh, the 10-year JGB at 0%. Uh, and so once you've done all these things and you still need more stimulus, uh, you know, they, they engage then in actual purchasing of equities. Uh, I think we're still a long way before we get to that point. That's an interesting point. Going back to the initial announcement uh, back in March, uh, the, many are questioning why, if we're compared with other central banks, why did the Bank of Canada felt the need to introduce such an aggressive monetary tool? Uh, and objectively, is it still needed today? And why it really, uh, at that point in March, the bank did not decide to lower rates into negative territory instead of using QE? Oh, there's a, there's a bunch of meat in that question. Okay, well, let's just start off. Uh, you know, what happened with the pandemic is is uh, it literally created a huge crater uh, in the economy. Uh, and, and you had to backfill that. You had to backfill that with fiscal policy. You had to backfill that with monetary policy. Uh, we learned a thing or two in the wake of the uh, uh, of the Great Recession and the global financial crisis. And, uh, and this thing could have spiraled out of control. And, and therefore, you had to act decisively and quickly. And, uh, and if anything, the Bank of Canada was a little slower than the Fed in bringing interest rates down to the effective lower bound and may have made up for it by being a little bit more aggressive, uh, given the size of its initial balance sheet on the quantitative uh, easing front. Uh, uh, you know, it, I mean, right now, uh, this is a very necessary policy. Uh, there's still lots of slack in the economy. The concern right now is not inflation. It's the opposite. Just take a look at the latest, uh, you know, in, uh, CPI numbers. Uh, uh, and, and the unemployment rate still remains high, so that we do have a lot of work to do still in, 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 in making sure we promote as, as, as robust a recovery uh, as, as possible. So it, this, this is an interesting point as we need to maintain this for a while. And objectively, the strong policy response has been positive for borrowers uh, who now have access to lower mortgage and personal loan rates, Businesses have access also to a very low uh, borrowing cost. Uh, it has also been positive for fixed income investors over the last eight months as we've seen uh, long-term yields uh, significantly uh, declining. Now, th- what can we really expect from the Bank of Canada? We understand at this point it can't be maintained, but how long can it be maintained uh, in place? How long can they keep buying 
And at what point do you think that they will start slowing down or even end the program? And is there a limit, really, to uh, how long you can hold QE in place? Well, let's put it this way. The bond crop isn't going to fail anytime soon in Canada, given the size of uh, uh, federal and provincial government's deficits. There'll be a lot to buy, so they, they can keep going uh, as long as they need to. Uh, the, the, o- the only sort of governor of this is, is that uh, when we come to the point when, when we have fully recovered GDP, jobs, and, and other metrics, we've fully recovered from the pandemic recession – uh, then at that point, you don't really want to be adding even more stimulus, uh, uh, fueling even more aggregate spending in the economy through your policies. That's both monetary and fiscal policy. Now, and, and from that perspective, uh, even we are just thinking that we may start to get back all the GDP lost, just the GDP, by the end of next year. It may be well into 2023 before we get all the jobs back uh, that we lost during uh, uh, the recession. So, uh, and I think the Bank of Canada is, is prepared to, to do whatever it takes uh, uh, to make sure the recovery continues at a, at a, at a, at a firm pace. If, if a fiscal policy turns out to be a little bit more aggressive, that may take some of the onus off of, of monetary policy. And we've already seen the Bank of Canada, it's tweaked its programs a little bit. It was buying shorter-term securities in the corporate market, BAs and, and commercial paper, and then they stopped doing so. In fact, I believe they're winding up the BA program now. So they, they, they will change according to underlying conditions. Uh, but, you know, the, 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 the thing they told us is that we will be doing this as long as it's needed. And when it's not needed, we will let you know, and you will know well ahead of time. And, and if you're following the same things we're following, you're looking at the same data we're looking at, you'll know when it's time to start reining things in. Recently, many have raised the, the yellow flag uh, to the risk that a prolonged period of low interest rates and asset purchases could be inflationary. If we're going back to our textbooks and universities, that's what we were taught, that in a context of excessive use of the money printing press could actually lead to inflation. Considering that our economies have had relatively low inflation over the last 25 years and plus, uh, is this something we should be concerned now? And so should we assume that without the support of the central bank, if that was the case, it could be fairly negative for interest rate markets? Well, I mean, a couple of things you have to think about here. Right now, the biggest concern is the amount of slack in the economy, and that is disinflationary. Uh, and, uh, and, and, and therefore, you know, you, you need as, as much stimulus as you can to make sure that the recovery is a, as robust as, as it can be so that you close all the, you absorb, you take in all that slack in the economy. Because the problem is the longer, you know, you're underperforming, the more it became, becomes like a self-fulfilling prophecy in, in the sense that uh, people who have temporarily lost their jobs, those become permanent job losses. And, and they'll become at some point, you know, when, when the economy is doing better. And we may even start to see a little bit of cyclical pressure on, on inflation, as you normally would when the economy is getting you know, late in a business cycle or something like that. But there's some other things at play. And it's one of the reasons why over the last several years, both the Bank of Canada and the Fed have had a very hard time even getting to 2% inflation is because of these secular forces uh, that, that, uh, that, that, are, that are disinflationary inherently. First of those is demographics. We are becoming an older society, and you just got to look at Japan to find out what happens when economies age, where their, where their citizens age. Uh, on average, it tends to be disinflationary. The other thing, and this, if anything, this has been this trend has been accelerated by the pandemic. It's technological change, 
And, and that, too, is inherently disinflationary. Think of what Uber has done to taxi fares, what Airbnb have done to hotel fares, what Amazon has basically done to everybody. Uh, it's inherently disinflationary. So I don't think there's going to be inflation for a very long time. Over the medium term, again, when we reach this point where, where, where we're fully recovered, the economy is performing exactly where it should be, if we still have all that stimulus in, in place at that time, then yes, you worry about you know inflationary pressures building, but we're talking a five to ten year period, not say under a five year period. Now let's switch gears just uh, just uh, to uh, to conclude this uh, this uh, podcast and discuss the growing deficit and government debt burden. Uh, deficit in Canada is expected to exceed three hundred forty billion this year, ten times bigger than la- last year, if not more. The government is expected to borrow more than $400 billion in, uh, in fixed-income markets compared to last year's uh, $125-ish uh, billion. And that excludes provincial and municipal government debts that are also growing. The weaker fiscal environment has already uh, led one rating agency to downgrade Canada from its uh, AAA uh, pure rating from all agencies and could lead ultimately to more downgrades down the down the road. Object, objectively, the focus has been dealing with the, the current pandemic, but there doesn't seem to be a long-term plan yet on how the government will pay this back. Many questions from investors are coming back saying, is it the next generations? Is it going to be my kids paying for uh, these, uh, these growing deficits and increased debt? These deficits are, uh, and the growing debt, unfortunately, seems to be unsustainable. Well, first, uh, can can you give us an indication about uh, BMO economics forecasts for deficit and the debt to GDP in the future? And second, uh, has there been any discussion uh, whatsoever as a long-term plan to uh, reimburse? And what could we, as investors and clients, realistically uh, expect in the future? That's a great question. Uh, I mean, the government uh, used to have a commitment to uh, running a, a size of a deficit so that the debt ratio was, was in a stable. Of course, the pandemic changed all that, and, and now the, the debt-to-GDP ratio is, is rising sharply. It's rising sharply everywhere around the world. It's, it's, you know, it's, it's now above 100% in the U.S. It's nowhere near the levels we had in the early 1990s in Canada, which was arguably we did have a little bit of a, a fiscal crisis at the federal government level. Uh, but it's going to get higher. Uh, uh, and I suspect we will get, uh, uh, you know, if not in the upcoming budget, the one after that. But I believe we will get some indication in, in, in the next fiscal statement at least uh, uh, what they're thinking about, uh, um, you know, and uh, Stabilizing the situation over time because the current trajectory is not sustainable. We we know that, uh, but the, and I'll just use the words of a Fed Chair Powell, uh, who said that in front of Congress, I mean the, the folks that are you know deciding on these massive amounts, trillions of dollars of fiscal stimulus, he says, listen, what you're doing, guys, um, uh, uh, what you're doing, folks, is is not sustainable. You're going to have to fix this. You're going to have to right the fiscal ship uh, down the road. But please don't do it now because the economy desperately needs as much support as possible so we can be in a position where we can, you know, uh, address it. So how do you address this over time? You know, and, and uh, you know, let's put it this way. When we were during the Second World War and, the, and, and deficits and debts were as large, you know, as they are, are, are now, uh, no one was saying we shouldn't do this. 
uh, we had no choice. We had a war to fight. And, and from that perspective, we're also fighting a war uh, against a virus. Right? So, so but when, we, when the war is over, when the war is won, then what do we do? Well, no, there, there are many ways we can deal with the deficit over time. We can raise taxes. We can cut spending. We can hope for stronger real growth. Uh, you know, some people try to get a bit more inflation to kind of deflate your way out of it. Uh, the problem with a lot of these things, like, uh, you know, raising taxes or cutting spending are inherently, you know, uh, um, you know anti-growth. Uh, so there's only limited amounts you want to do that. We, we, we don't want to turn Canada into a Greece where, where austerity actually becomes extremely painful for, for, for our citizens. Uh, we're not going to get the kind of real growth we had coming out of the Second World War, which helped a lot. Uh, maybe, you know, by investing more in green technology, we can get a boost of productivity and things like that. Uh, we've already shown that, that we, we don't do a good job in trying to push up inflation. Uh, uh, and again, it's, I think it's because of the structural forces that are there. So, so I think we're going to deal with this over time, uh, over a very long time, uh, mixing all those things together. Uh, higher taxes, lower spending, uh, uh, trying to push for a little bit more productivity and growth, and perhaps allowing inflation to run just a little bit hotter than, than it has been in the past. Not a lot, but just a little. That's the Fed's mantra, by the way, now. And there's one fifth measure. There's one other measure, a fifth one, that, that also is a very crucial part in how to deal with this over time. And it's called financial repression. Keeping interest rates as low as you possibly can make uh, financing the government's deficit as easy as possibly can. And, and I, I do think we're getting a mix of all of these things together, but it's going to take a very long time to, to uh, pay off the bill, so to speak. And yes, are we leaving this for a legacy for our children? Yes. But, but the, the thing is, though, we're leaving them a legacy of debt. The, other, the alternative was to leave them with no economy. Okay? And, and we made a choice, and I think it was the right choice. These are going to be very interesting times, indeed. Uh, Michael, I want to thank you for your contribution today in uh, helping us demystify the, uh, the monetary policy tools and navigate the, uh, the world of monetary policies. Sylvain, back to you. Thank you, Richard. What a fascinating conversation to you both. Richard and Michael, thank you again for taking some time uh, to bring this podcast uh, to our valued clients. You've shed some really interesting light, I think, on this topic. And on behalf of our listeners today, we appreciate your comments. It's very helpful to understand how the central bank is going to be and is intervening to expedite the recovery and the actions that are being taken to protect uh, ultimately the well-being of, of Canadians during this difficult time. We're counting on them to do so. So to our listeners, thank you for spending a bit of time with us today. We appreciate uh, your loyalty and, and uh, your interest. Thank you again, Richard and uh, Michael, for your time. Everybody stay well, be safe, and until we speak again, thank you and have a great day. This podcast series has been brought to you by BMO Private Wealth. Please join us again.